You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Crazy Legs, Ben Folks. Crazy Legs, how you doing? Doing all right. Can you-, you can you comment on this? I, this uh, blast from the past, I, Little Birdie told me this week that... Uh, they used to call you Crazy Legs back in the day. That is true. Maybe when you were running around uh, starting at outside linebacker for the Claremont High School football team. That's right. The Wolf Pack. Go Pack. Uh, yeah. I mean, I feel like the nickname itself paints a picture, but uh, can you maybe give me the origin story? Or I like to think that it was a nod to my throwback style of play. Okay. Yeah. Maybe like a both ways, fingers in the dirt. Just leather helmet, even though they kept telling me that that was illegal and just highly unsafe, and I continued to do it anyway. I would have gone with the Galloping Ghost as your nickname if we were going to go with a throwback style. Well, that I mean, I'm pale, and uh, my running style does seem a little bit more galloping than sprinting, even when I think I'm running really fast, so I guess that works. See, the nickname Crazy Legs makes me think like you had a humorous running style. That's That would be my... I think, actually, it was just more... Um, like started out as a joke kind of thing. But I'll tell you who did have a good nickname on that same high school football team, the man who is currently Conor McGregor's manager, Audi Attar, who was arguably the best player on that team, uh, the Arabian Nightmare. Now, it is one of those nicknames that you clearly gave yourself, but goddamn, it's just fun. Now, see, I can't reveal my sources in who it was who told me that uh, they used to call you Crazy Legs folks out on the football field. But it is perhaps coincidental that I also interviewed Adi Attar this past week. Uh-huh. I see. So, I don't know. People can draw their own conclusions from that. <laughs> I suppose they can. I suppose they can, Chad. Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event, Co-Main Event Podcast, it's good to get the name of the show right. Do you feel the- like you want to start over? Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by Battles of London, our dudes from across the pond who run the world's only designer fightwear label. It's been described as combat sports luxe by none other than the Times of London, so that's pretty good. Remember, Battles of London is going to be out at the Polaris 5 Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu event this Saturday, August 19th at the O2. That event features Gary Tonin versus Dylan Danis in the main event, and if you happen to be in the neighborhood, you can take in all the hot grappling action and then stop by the Battles of London booth where they'll have have two new designs exclusively on sale that they'll be unveiling this week. Uh, You can also check out a preview of their new Battles of Paris capsule collection, as worn by Tom Fire kid Dukenwa. Oh yeah, and you can watch the whole event on thefightpass.com. And obviously CME readers should follow Battles of London on Twitter as well as on Instagram and Facebook at Battles of London. That's right, Chad. We've been telling our listeners about Battles of London for a few weeks now. We've gotten to know the people behind the label a little bit. Danny, the designer, has worked on a label called Passarella Death Squad, which is available from top stores. Steve, uh, the founder, has been editor of Fighters Only Magazine, the fashion director of FHM Magazine in the UK, among a bunch of other magazine roles. The other guys behind the business trained in either boxing or MMA, and they all want to promote martial arts as a positive lifestyle discipline that improves health, peace of mind, creativity, business, family, and friendships. 
We always say get out and support the people who support the podcast, and Battles of London is a company that definitely deserves your support. We're talking about cutting-edge sportswear pieces with contemporary design and branding. The apparel is custom-engineered, designed exclusively for the brand, and cut with the athletic physique in mind. Signature training t-shirts are made in a tempered fabric for comfort when sparring or rolling, and a sharp fit outside the gym. Sweats, hoodies, and track pants are roomy and luxurious for the ultimate in post-training comfort. Also, check out their Muay Thai shorts with more pieces inspired by classic martial arts designs to come. Go check them out now at battlesoflondon.com and enter that promo code CME for 10% off or email them if there's something they're out of stock and you want it. Tons of cool stuff going on right now at Battles of London. Elite clothing for combat sports aficionados. We got music again this week from our colleague in the MMA media, Eric Fontanez. You can find his writing over at bloodyelbow.com. And if you like what you hear from his music, you can find more over at soundcloud.com slash Eric Fontanez. Three rounds, as usual this week, in the co-main event podcast. You know, it's, it was almost an ain't shit going on week. I mean, it kind of is an ain't shit going on week, even when there is shit going on. Sorry, there's enough shit going on. There's barely an hashtag, barely enough shit going on. Three, there's at least three things going on. There's kind of a reach to get to three, but we got there. In round number one, 12 days to go before the richest fight in combat sports history. So naturally, the dominant narratives are all about Versace robes and weird arm swings, horsehair gloves, and whether Polly Malandaji got pushed down or knocked down. And in round number two, should UFC fighters still be independent contractors? That's right, a whole round propping up whatever bullshit Ben Folks wrote just this week because, say it with me now, ain't shit going on. Ain't shit going on. And in round number three, so GSP versus MTCB is okay at MSG on 11-4 for UFC 217. Can you feel the E-X-C-I-T-E-M-E-N-T? Had to go with spelling out excitement at the end there. Couldn't have gone with a shorter one. All the that. F-U-N? <laughs> Say H-Y-P-E? No, yeah, man. Okay. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Cameron Chapman. He writes, In honor of international ain't shit going on week, let's all speculate wildly about dream matchups the UFC could make in the women's divisions. I'm talking about Joanna Violence versus Bullet Shevchenko at 125 pounds. Cyborg versus Home. Cyborg versus a shadow version of herself a la Zelda 2, The Adventures of Link. That one might be a little too video game nerdy for me to follow it. I think that might be after my time. Yeah. Because I know the original Zelda. The original Legend of Zelda. Yes. yes. Not on board with any sequels, yeah. however. If it's not the little guy blowing the recorder uh, to make like a ghost appear or whatever it was, and you could find the map in the back of Nintendo Power magazine, I'm out. Maybe Angela Hill versus JoJo Calderwood, where they break the record for strikes thrown in a 15-minute fight. Maybe cosplay match with Angela Hill versus newly signed Rachel Ostovich. But where... Ostovich has to fight fight as her Wonder Woman persona, and Hill can choose between... He's thought a lot about this. Yeah, a lot of thought has gone into this. Uh, between any number of her awesome gimmicks, just spitballing here. It's international yeah. ain't shit... Yeah, sure you are, Cameron. Uh, it's international ain't shit going on week. Anything is possible, discuss. Why do I think that Cameron Chapman probably has like one of those storage units where you go in there and it looks like a true detective? Where there's just a bunch <laughs> of these pictures and like little pieces of yarn connecting them all... And he's trying to he's trying to put together some master plan that he's got in his head here. And in the end, they're going to spend five minutes staring at it and be like, "Wait a second! It was the guy we saw on the riding lawnmower in episode three. <laughs> that's 
Spoiler alert. Oh, yeah. Well, spoiler Thanks alert a lot, for Chad. all the people that haven't watched True Detective. It's not going to ruin your enjoyment of the television program, I don't think. You know, it has occurred to me, though, with a 125-pound division now, and if you got... You know, 115, 125, 135, and, you know, you're going to pretend like you have 145, but really you just have Cyborg versus whoever will agree to fight Cyborg next. But if you have that range, we've already seen a lot of 125ers went down to 115 or up to 135 just so they could fight in the UFC. It does seem like you have the opportunity for a lot of fluidity between these weight classes if people are willing to do it. Because already you see... You know, you, you say you have a 125-pound division, and already some people who have fought in other divisions for you are saying, like, all right, I'm in that one now. And if you can come up with some ideas for some fun matchups to make, especially for people who are not exactly rocketing to a title shot immediately, why not? It seems like now's the time to do some of that stuff, right? Yeah, I think so. And in terms of actual dream matchups that could be made in, in the women's divisions, I'm kind of looking forward to, to Cyborg versus Holly Holm, which I don't think is that much of a dream. That seems like probably what will happen for the featherweight title here before too long. I think that's a, a heck of a fight and one I would definitely hotly anticipate. And in addition to that, I'm just going to say, give me Joanna Yedjechik versus everybody. Like, if you can you make a fight with Joanna Yedjechik in it, we'll watch. Okay, then Make me though, a shirt that says Yedjechik versus everybody. We'll wear. Okay. I, I'm, I'm going to go to the mall right after this. Um, unrelated, but I will shirt get that works. shirt. Yeah, I'm going to go to Shirtworks and see what I can do for you. But that makes me wonder, because we've already talked before about if you have a 125-pound division, how long before Ioana Champion become Ioana Champions uh, and goes up there and goes after another belt. And yet the, the other thing that the cautionary tale of Conor McGregor reminds us is that the UFC is not really going to let you do that. They might let you go up there and challenge for another belt, but so far no indication that the UFC is actually going to let you hold two belts. So then what do you do with that? Right. Are you well, just doing it for, so that you can do it one time and say, see, I did it? And then you got to pick one? Or is that when Yoanna Yanjechik uh, picks on, like, Layla Ali or somebody? Clearly, I don't know any female boxers. Uh, almost by necessity that they can't really let a fighter have two titles in two weight classes. I mean, they got to, those titles have to stay in heavy rotation. I mean, except for the ones that Conor McGregor has, right? Those ones can get subbed out for months on end. Uh, but the, the, like, the sheer crush of the live event schedule at this point dictates they need most of those titles to be active so you you can't really have two or one person hanging on to two of them as cool as it seems i do like the idea of joanna jacek at 125 though i think it's super interesting just because if there's one thing that seems like her achilles heel or a weakness that she might have maybe it's that she's super slight of stature and so having her move up to a, a weight class where you know, it, it's it's more possible that she would face some bigger fighters, I think, would be kind of fascinating. Uh, so I'm into that. Be sure to check the spelling on Yed Jacek before you go down to Shirtworks and give me that shirt made. Other than that, I'm on board. Oh, I'm not even going to try that. We're just going with Joanna, maybe even just Champy. Next question this week comes to us from Jay in Oakland. He writes, have you guys seen the documentary Icarus that was just released on Netflix? If not, spoilers ahead. The short version is the guy who headed the Russian anti-doping lab winds up blowing the whistle that the whole anti-doping thing was really more of a super pro-doping thing that was state-sponsored and went all the way up to Putin and across all sports that cheated WADA in the last few Olympics. Shit gets real after that. See, that sounds real enough to me after that point. Uh, <laughs> but that's not the point. Do you think that this should 
should make us any more suspicious of fighters like Habib Nurmagomedov and other Russian MMA fighters that have come to prominence recently. Could this have any impact on how USADA often decides to test these Russian, or how often USADA decides to test these Russian fighters? Please discuss. I have not seen this documentary, but you had me at documentary about doping in sports. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but it sounds interesting. It sounds like a tip for the well-rounded fight fan. Yes, it does. I will definitely check this out. But I have read in the New York Times the stuff about this, uh, how they say that they got away with a bunch of doping at the Sochi Olympics, if that's the one we're talking about. And it actually seemed like you're expecting something super high-tech, but the report in the New York Times said that it was something to the effect of basically they built like a secret back door into the lab where they just reached in at night and subbed out the samples after the samples had been collected. Hmm. Uh, so like not exactly, you know, Mission Impossible kind of stuff. Basically just like, you know, when the the screwball teens in the, the comedy movie drill a peephole into the girls' locker room, it's like that, okay. only for doping. Uh, I don't really see the connection with the with the MMA fighters, though, right? Because those people wouldn't be policed. I mean, maybe maybe when you're fighting on the independent circuit in Russia, you would be policed by some kind of Russian-centric anti-doping agency. But w- w- once you come over to the United States and once you sign a, a a contract with the UFC, you would be subject to the to that that company's anti-doping policy, which would be, as far as we know, on the level. I mean, we've talked at length, probably too much in the past, about how the uh, the relationship at times seems a little cozy and not necessarily that uh, anyone knows of a lot of impropriety going on, but it just seems possible. Right. Uh, But we have every reason to believe that most of the drug testing there is on the level at this point. And like, I feel like it's kind of now that I, even that I've said that it's kind of unfair to single out like Russian fighters on the independent fight scene. Cause I got news for you. You got to be suspicious of American fighters on the independent fight scene where there's Basically, no drug testing, right? But see, the the question here basically is that if there was a state-sponsored program where basically it was important enough to the government of Russia right. to go out there and win some damn Olympic medals, right. to like get like for this to be not just individual athletes and their coaches uh, trying to figure out a way to to cheat, but the actual like state apparatus getting behind it and putting you know the resources and the know-how and everything behind it, which obviously automatically makes it just a little more of a scary conspiracy there. Um, if they were that willing to do it to make Russia look good in the Olympics, would they be willing to make to do it to make Russia look good in fight sports? We already saw, you know, you could, if you wanted to really reach, you could connect it to that HBO sports uh, thing in Chechnya where you, you see an example of somebody who's using MMA to help him politically. Uh, you know, it's at least conceivable that the government of Russia would be like, all right, MMA seems like something we're good at. We're good at fight sports. We're having a lot of success there. We help make, you know, Russian, build up Russian pride in this thing. If we have a bunch of dudes, maybe we can help them that way through some state-sponsored doping program. I mean, and if the question is, should USADA then be a little more aggressive about testing Russian fighters than about fighters from anywhere else? Yeah, I don't know if you really want to start singling them out in that way. I think you would just hope that the USADA program is good enough at testing everybody and doing it often enough that if that's the case, you'll start catching some of those people. Next question this week comes to us from Manchester United Club. What What is he? He's a club ambassador now, I believe, but he was a player. For- club ambassador Ji Sung Park. We always appreciate getting mail from our uh, famous soccer playing friends from all over the globe. He writes, hashtag, with, with hashtag ain't shit going on, it's the perfect time to ask. 
what makes a good nickname and what are your favorite slash least favorites? Now, see, people thought I was just mocking you at the beginning of the show when I brought up Crazy Legs Folks, but there's a tie-in. There see is. This, and now we're tying it into this nickname question. That's right. Now, I obviously, I've given way too much thought to the nicknames in MMA over the years. That's probably a staple of this show, yeah. giving too much thought to that aspect of the fight game. I think some of the things that I think make a nickname really work. For one thing, it's got to be somewhat distinctive, but not in a way where you're trying super hard. And it doesn't always have to even really make a ton of sense for you intellectually. Like, I think of Shogun Hua, right? Where, you know, it's like he was Shogun, his brother was Ninja Hua, and it was like in the Pride days it was Shogun and, and Ninja. And, you know, I mean, there's nothing super obvious that jumps out to you that says like okay here's a real samurai thing that he's got going on i mean he's an aggressive fighter a brazilian shooter box fighter like they all were pretty aggressive fighters but it was distinctive enough where there wasn't like there was a whole bunch of shoguns running around it seemed like you know maybe not something that he had just sat around and come up with on his own just to try to sound badass and you know he's fighting in japan so it seemed like maybe it could have been like fairly organic and then it just got attached to him. And so it was to a point like Rampage Jackson where you could just say Rampage, you could say Shogun, and we know exactly who you're talking about. That's one of the things that makes a good nickname. If you can just say it and we know, all right. But you can't just say Pitbull and have us know who the hell we're talking right. about. Right. I, mean, I guess it's the ultimate sign of the good nickname when the nickname just replaces your name. Yes. Right? Like nobody calls Shogun who a Mauricio. I mean, maybe his family, but... We're or, not on this podcast being like, oh, man, I can't wait till Mauricio fights again. Yeah, or every, I feel weird every time I have to type out Quentin Jackson. Now, see, I'm going to say, I'm going to use the pornography definition for, uh -oh. for good nicknames in you, that. You know it when you see it? Yeah, like, I, I don't know that there's a hard and fast rule for what they are, but I, but I know a good nickname when I see one. Like, Polly the Magic Man Malinaji, which is obviously awesome just because of the sheer alliteration, Right. Which is one we just uncovered last week. You like some alliteration. I do like alliteration. I, I think that there's nicknames like Randy the Natural Couture, which is a, a nickname that really does uh, fit the guy, kind of. Kind of makes seems like it makes sense. But then you're right. There, there you could be a nickname which doesn't even really happen to uh, have to like feel descriptive or applicable to the person, but it can still just be like kind of awesome. Or I think like... Um... Even though it's not like one of my exact favorite nicknames, uh, the Iceman, Chuck Liddell, that one, because you can see that that was probably applied to other, like to him by other people who saw like his demeanor uh, going into fights, that he was known for being a guy that didn't get rattled uh, and was very calmly violent in his fights. And it didn't seem like something where he sat there and was like, you know, it'd be rad if I just start calling myself the Iceman. Like, it's hard to imagine Chuck Liddell caring that much about something like a nickname to even sit there and try to come up with one himself. So that kind where you, you get it, it's somewhat distinctive, but it feels like the guy's own. One of the awesome things about the Iceman, too, is that it basically came with an entire branding opportunity, right? Because right? then you get into the blue shorts with the ice on them. You got the Iceman logo. Uh, it just seemed like Chuck the Iceman Liddell really... Like that's what, that's actually a pretty good example of a successful nickname. Or even Anderson the Spider Silva, which comes with like a color scheme that lends itself to marketing opportunities. You know, it, the like the whole uh, 
idea like behind a lot of guys where they try to just think of like the scariest possible thing that they can come up with. Uh, and that I think like is so counterproductive a lot of times because who are you trying to scare exactly? The other guy getting in the cage with you, it's not like he's going to hear like, oh, this dude's the pit bull. Oh, yeah. that's a scary yeah. dog. Yeah. Like, what are you really trying to accomplish there? You want something that that's going to feel like your own, uh, which is one of, the, I think, the issues we took with the Reaper, uh, mm -hmm. Bobby Knuckles' preferred official nickname. Is, is If it sounds like something that is going to be a, a choice in the drop-down menu of the creative fighter portion of a, of a UFC video game, then maybe think harder. On the other hand, El Kakui is, I think, kind of awesome. Yeah. It is super uh, distinctive to Tony Ferguson. Like it speaks to to who he is as an individual. Plus, it's kind of scary. <laughs> I mean, no, Tony Ferguson's not going to scare other fighters with it. But when I hear it, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> right, kind of scary, but Just still scared. fun at the same time. Yeah, it's fun to say. All right, Ben, we may have jumped the shark here because the next question comes to us from retired Finnish professional ice hockey right winger Yari Curry. Oh, hey, hey, Yari. So what you're saying is that we're reaching out into other sports, really. Yeah, yes. that's The CME is big time. I'm saying maybe people ought to put their real names on these things. <laughs> he writes, given that we are coming up on a couple of weeks of ain't shit going on, I figured that this is a good time to harass you boys about doing more book clubs or at least re-release the Tank Abbott one because there's probably a bunch of co-maniacs that haven't heard it. Uh, thanks, guys, and hope to hear about the White Elephant essay contest in the future. Two things. Unbeknownst to you, Ben, I'm trying to set up a book club for a future episode. Okay. Uh, I don't want to get too into it just in case it doesn't work out. But in answer to retired Finnish professional ice hockey right winger Yari Curry's question, we are considering a book club uh, probably would be in the fall. Probably oh. would be in October. This is news to me. Do you have a book in mind? I do. But you can't know what it is yet. Okay. That's weird. That's a weird thing for you to do. Well, I'll let you in on it. You'll, it's an, it's, let's just say it'll be on a need-to-know basis. Also, uh, for the question about re-releasing the Tank Abbott one, I mean, it's still out there. It's not like we hit it in the vaults or yeah, anything. Yeah, you can go you, find it. Yeah. It's I not... mean, I don't even know that we have it anymore, like on a computer, but... I uh... mean, I feel like you could probably Google it. Tank Abbott Book Club CME and probably get you there. There was some talk recently about doing another White Elephant essay contest, and uh, our guy Chris Rennie had already responded that he wanted to donate some artwork as the grand prize. And then it kind of slipped through my fingers, and we didn't we didn't get it done. But I also agree with Finnish retired professional ice hockey right winger Yari Curry. We ought to do another one, okay. it's, especially right now. The the world of mixed martial arts feels ripe for a, an essay contest. A lot of good topics out there. Yeah, such as we got Mayweather McGregor. It seems like we could write a good prompt about that. You could WME IMG's acquisition of the UFC seems like it could be a uh, it could be a good prompt. It seems like the 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 trajectory of the sport toward more spectacle seems like it could make a good prompt. Did what, I don't even remember what prompts there were for the original white S, white elephant essay contest. I just remember that the, the essay about the Eminem curse that yeah. entered my brain and has never left. Well, and kind of like, frankly, in retrospect, something of a star studded, uh, group of applicants in the white elephant essay contest. So like, remember Sean Sheehan, was an early adapter of the White Elephant Essay Contest. Now, obviously, he runs or works for Severe MMA over there in Ireland as a respected member of the mixed martial arts media. So you're saying that the White Elephant Essay Contest is a true career launch pad? I'm saying we're out here launching careers. Okay. Next question this week. Last question this week, right? Comes to us from Mike D. 
From the Beastie Boys? Yeah, got to be Mike D from Michael the Beastie Diamond. Boys. Michael Diamond. Why is Alexander Gustafson considered by many to be such an amazing fighter that should fight John Jones next? Oh, come now, Mike D. I understand that he has some impressive victories over the years and has one of the best fights of all time with John Jones in the past, but that was the past. Okay. Uh, after looking at his record, I am honestly confused as to why he is put on such a high pedestal. Uh, he has consistently lost when he has reached the best of the best fighters. So why would we feed him to John Jones again? He does have a good record, but most of his wins are from no name fighters or fighters that are past their prime. Please explain that shiz in all caps. That shiz. You may be Mike D and you get respect, but I think you're cashing your jewelry is what I expect. (laughs) Okay. I kind of understand if you just look at like the record wise, like, Hey, Alexander Gustafson, whenever he gets into the really big fight, Against John Jones, Daniel Cormier, Anthony Johnson, he loses those fights. Um, fair, fair point. However, I think part of it is due to you look around the landscape at light heavyweight and you say, who else is there who can even say that? Because he gets into a fight with John Jones and it's a great fight, arguably could have gone his way. He gets into that fight with Daniel Cormier, another great fight. I mean, I think that one may be a little bit of a clearer decision for Daniel Cormier, but a hell of a fight, just to be able to push those two guys uh, to that extent, already you've proved to me that you are an elite light heavyweight. I mean, the knockout to Anthony Johnson, that can kind of happen to anybody against Anthony Johnson, and then he beats everybody else. Yeah. So uh, you look around, and who else is there? You know, you got no time, Ozdemir, who I know that you know we're all going to be very excited about, but I also think that Alexander Gustafson has been there doing it at that level for so long that why wouldn't you go ahead and run that John Jones fight back at this point? Just to see, just to find out if that, if, cause we heard all that stuff about John Jones didn't really train. You know, it seems like a better John Jones now. Let's find out, put them back in there together. Yeah. And like you said, the idea of that rematch benefits a little bit due to the light heavyweight division's shallow nature. Like if this was the lightweight division and we were just absolutely, uh, the cup was flowing over with, with rad title contenders, we probably wouldn't be that interested in Alexander Gustafson versus John Jones, but it does make for a compelling, uh, compelling matchup to see if John Jones comes, if the version of John Jones that beat Daniel Cormier a second time uh, comes in to fight Alexander Gustafson, what would happen? Uh, And you talk about Alexander Gustafson, 18 career wins and four career losses. And those losses are, as you said, Phil Davis, John Jones, Anthony Johnson, Daniel Cormier, like not 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 too much to sneeze at there in the in the career of Alexander Gustafson, uh, and like I don't know I don't know why we would undermine his like basically if you want to you can go through any MMA fighter's record and and make it seem less than what it is, but with Alexander Gustafson like I don't understand why we would like why would we become detractors of his? It seems like uh, he has been very successful. He has lost to the best of the best. And it's not like there are dudes floating around where you're like, oh, man, why hasn't Alexander Gustafson fought this guy? You know what I mean? He's fought everybody who's out there. It's also not like there are dudes floating around where you're like, I can't believe this guy is getting passed over for the title shot at light heavyweight he has so obviously earned, just so undeserving Alexander Gustafson can get another crack at it. I just don't see that. You know, it's hard to even keep a contender around these days at 205 pounds. So it's not like this is coming at the, or if, if in fact it is John Jones and Alexander Gustafson next, it's not like it's coming at the expense of somebody else who has more clearly demonstrated they deserve it. Suckers write me checks and then they bounce. 
So I reach into my pocket, put the fist to mouth. Something the Beastie Boys have probably never done, but still one of my favorite Beastie Boys lyrics. I can tell it just came tripping off your tongue now. Shout out to Mike D for that one. That's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in re- in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That will get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all of the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We think you will like it. We would like to think it's funny. If you do not like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. I'm having a really hard time saying the name of our podcast on this show today. It's not really that difficult. The Co-Main Event Podcast. You've been doing it for a long time. 268 episodes. Maybe too many episodes. Maybe maybe I've maybe I've reached the end of my road. Maybe it's time to put you out to pasture, get a young young fresh voice in here. You know what? Here. When it takes Chad Dundas too long to stand up and too long to fall down, it's time for me to get out of the way and let some young buck come in here and do the work. As for right now though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number 1. Well, Ben, we are less than two weeks away from the fight that we all thought could never happen. Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather inside the squared circle. Under Marcus of Queensbury rules, a boxing match for the UFC lightweight champion. Uh, tons of storylines going on right now to choose from. I guess let let us start with the most uh, potentially pertinent one to a show uh, listened to by a bunch of people that like fighting. The UFC this past week released a 10-second uh, clip of the sparring footage, the infamous sparring footage between Conor McGregor and the magic man, Polly Malignaggi, appearing to show Conor McGregor maybe legitimately knocking down Polly Malignaggi during a sparring session. What's your take? What's going on here? What's really going on? First of all, I think it's worth noting that I'm sitting there on Friday night and I, I get an email. I see it's from the UFC and it's like sparring footage of Conor McGregor and Polly Malignaggi. And I'm like, oh, oh, oh boy, this is going to be good. And I click on the link and it's 10 seconds. And even and there's an edit in the 10 seconds. You can't even show me like 10 continuous seconds. You have to splice together two scenes. Have you ever tried to go on the internet and look at Bigfoot? footage on like youtube man you know i have this is what this reminded me of if you go on the go on the youtubes and you like want to look at some sasquatch footage you will find people being like stone cold lead pipe proof of the existence of sasquatch a preview of my documentary which will come out sometime at a later date and then you click on it and it's like weird 10 second clips with edits in the middle of it of a fuzzy fursuit like walking around in the distance. And and to which I think to myself, man, if you had stone cold lead pipe proof of the existence of the Sasquatch, why are you giving me 
fuzzy 10 second edited clips because you're gonna say the good stuff for your documentary that'll never which come is out never coming out <laughs> right and that's kind of like what i feel like about the uh conor mcgregor paul Polly malinaji uh sparring footage that's like okay well if, if we got sparring footage that is that the point of which is to make us feel like conor mcgregor has a better chance against floyd mayweather on august the 26th uh than we thought that he had previously Put the whole thing out, man, because that's what I want to see. Like, if you legitimately have footage that's going to make me think, oh, yeah, 100 bucks out of my wallet, mailing it to Showtime because I want to watch this fight more now, post that. And when you post, like, an edited 10-second clip, I believe that the natural assumption is that we're hiding something, right? Yeah, well... Or that we're trying to make something look like something that it's not. In a reasonable world, that would be the nat- natural assumption, and I'm sure it's going to be the natural assumption for a lot of people... Uh, but one of the phenomenon we've seen surrounding Conor McGregor for basically his entire MMA career and definitely his entire career in the UFC is that he inspires in his fans a kind of loyalty that no other fighter seems to. To the point where, like, if you go on Twitter and you say something about Conor McGregor, like, he's a really good fighter. I think he has, like, holes in the following part of his game. People will be like, oh, another McGregor hater. Like, if you do not just fall down loving the guy, then these people will be convinced that you hate him or that you know you're you're trying to bring him down or you're not giving him his credit. He he has that in a way that no other fighter really does, at least right now in MMA. And so to those people, this is just going to be like, yes, proof of what I already believe to be true despite having zero evidence of it. Like that's that's all they're going to see when they look at that. And to some people who are kind of on the fence and who are going to be like, you know, this guy can't box, they see him in there with a two-time champion or two-division champion uh, in Pauli Malignaggi, the magic man, and he does. He lands a pretty stiff left hand on him. Yes. I was just going to say, now that we've spent the first four minutes of this thing, of this round, running down this 10-second clip, doesn't it kind of work? Because it kind of works for me. Okay. I mean, it kind of works in the sense that you knew nothing about his boxing uh, ability, if he even had any. You you just it was a a complete unknown, and so then if you pile in a little something, you pour just a little something into the broth there, it has the ability to completely overpower it because there's nothing there to begin with. And so if you take a little bit where he looks kind of good for ten seconds, and you throw that in there, and that's all we've really seen of him. That and you know him working on a heavy bag and not looking too impressive, um, but one assumes you'd have to be like intentionally. Uh, looking unimpressive to, on the heavy bag the way he had that's this recent workout, then, yeah, like, you have so little information to work off of that if that's the only information you have, you go, okay, that's kind of surprising. Like, but then again, one of the things I think you do have to remember is that Malinaji recently retired. You kind of pull him out of whatever his retirement consists of. I'm guessing not a whole lot of heavy training. And you throw him in there against sparring, and you come out of it with 10 seconds that you can show. I, I mean, maybe you feel like you have a lot more footage of Conor McGregor just putting an ass whipping on him, and you don't want to show it because you don't want to give Floyd Mayweather anything to look at. I mean, a part of me feels like the last thing Floyd Mayweather is doing right now is studying a whole bunch of film of Conor McGregor. I don't think he's really that worried about it. But I can see the logic if you were like, okay, this is why we don't put out more footage. But we want to put out just enough to kind of whet people's appetite and convince them that, yes, he really can box. But I also think if you needed to splice together two clips in order to get to 10 seconds, then you didn't have that much good stuff. Because otherwise, you know, 
it's such a short clip. Why does there need to be a cut in it? The cut is suspicious. If you just had him just looking good, put an ass whipping on him, just show that. So this, all of this stuff happens. The uh, release of the 10-second sparring footage, the notion that we are going to move from 10-ounce gloves to 8-ounce gloves, uh, Floyd Mayweather starting to turn up the heat a little bit on his own trash talk, starting to go uh, bring up some of the more racially insensitive things uh, that have been said during this, the lead up to this fight, all, all of this build, right? It's like, it's all starting to happen kind of at once amid these reports that ticket sales for this thing are a little bit sluggish, that maybe they priced the live event tickets a little bit too high. On one hand, I feel like maybe the boxing and, and potentially MMA media too uh, are making like too big of a deal out of the ticket sales because that's not where most of the money is going to come from. But does it seem to you like maybe not a coincidence that all of these plot lines are starting to converge two weeks before the fight, like at least amid some concerns that things aren't selling as well as, as maybe they thought? Yeah, the thing to me that hints of concern, you talk about Floyd Mayweather ratcheting up the trash talk, but when I see him uh, talking to ESPN and being like, here are the reasons Conor McGregor should win, or here are the ways that he could beat me, uh, that to me is something where I'm like, he's worried that nobody's going to buy this because they think it's a mismatch. Like the the word that it's a mismatch and a farce has gotten out there too heavily to where they feel like they need to counteract it. And that kind of accomplishes, that seems like it's trying to accomplish the same thing as the sparring footage, basically, is you're trying to convince people like, no, wait a minute, this is legit. Like, this is not just a complete joke where one guy has no chance. This is going to be a real fight. And I think like that should be a vital concern for them because on one hand, you know, just the numbers of one guy having 49 professional boxing matches with no defeats and the other guy having zero professional boxing matches, people can do the math even if they're not boxing experts. And on the other, I think that for a lot of people, the regret of buying Mayweather Pacquiao is still a little bit fresh in their minds. And so I, I can understand how some people might be sitting there going, this is just going to be more Mayweather's bullshit, isn't it? Like I'm going to pay a hundred bucks and I'm not even really going to feel like I saw, like got to see a real fight uh, and it's going to be against a guy who you know, is not anywhere near a high-quality enough boxer to force him to do something, uh, they're worried that they're going to feel ripped off. And so it feels like this kind of stuff is an attempt to counteract that. And it's actually kind of like the sparring footage is a much more savvy attempt to do that than Mayweather going out there and telling like, like a media outlet, I'm I, here's why I should be worried. That one seems like way more transparent to me. It seems like a lot of the, the promo stuff that we've seen from the, the press tour um, to just some of this kind of guerrilla marketing stuff has highlighted for me that the UFC and the MMA people are a little bit better at at working the consumers through more modern technology and, and more like modern means than the boxing people are. The boxing people kind of expect a little bit more like, hey, we'll have a press conference, there'll be dancing girls, there'll be a singer, and you'll buy the shit because we tell you to, motherfucker. And maybe it's because MMA has had to work a little bit harder. They don't have a Floyd Mayweather to sell all those pay-per-views or haven't had that uh, throughout the history. They've gotten a little little better at uh, these more subtle means, I think. No, I totally agree with you. I've talked to all of the promoters for this fight over the last couple of weeks, and the thing that I walked away from feeling was that Dana White is a hell of a fight promoter. He's like, you come out of a conversation with him just feeling like he has done way more to sell this thing to you than when you talk to uh, Leonard Ellerbee or Steven Espinoza, both of whom, by the way, are lovely conversationalists, but like 
after you get off the phone with Dana White, you feel like you just talked to a dude who wants to make you buy this thing. And can I tell you how I'm honestly feeling about Mayweather McGregor right now? Please do. Maybe I'm a Mark-ass buster? Probably. 99% of my brain currently says, no chance. Right? Lopsided, walking away victory for Floyd Mayweather. 1% of my brain says, but Conor McGregor! He's done everything that he has said he was going to do, and me personally... Every time I've been like, nope, this is the fight he loses, he fucking wins it. Yep. And I said that about Chad Mendez. I said it about Jose Aldo. I thought he was probably going to beat Nate Diaz, and then he lost, so it's kind of like he pulled a switcheroo on me. <laughs> uh, and then I thought Eddie Alvarez was going to beat him, and he just went out there and worked Eddie Alvarez like it was nothing. So, me, I'm a mark, but I'm carrying a little bit of hope around in my back pocket. Is that wrong? No, I. I mean, I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's wrong. I, but I do think that because I've gone through the same exact thought process where I ask myself, what reason do I have to believe that Conor McGregor could could possibly win this boxing match? And the reasons are the reasons of a crazy person, um, be, because <laughs> he he has this ability to say what he's going to do in the future and then do it. And you're right. Like, it is remarkable. And it's not even just the actual fights. He'll tell you that he's going to make this much money. Now he's making this much money. He'll tell you that his name is going to be on the damn posters, like, in association with McGregor Entertainment or whatever it is. And there it is. You see it, like, on the canvas. You know, you're going to see it, like, you see it in the in the press uh, tour. You're going to see it on fight night. The UFC has to, like, try to hustle just to get its name as a, a co-promoter and McGregor's already there. Like all this kind of stuff he said he's going to do and he does it. And yet that's not, that's the kind of stuff that a, a person on the bus shouts that because this guy has an ability to basically shape the future with his own, the, the force of his own desire, that's what's going to happen. Like that's at, at a certain point that can't be enough. And yet you know, I, I can understand how for a lot of people it's an, it's going to be enough to get them to get that boxing match. And already, I can I'm hearing from people who never want to come see these things, who, but know that I end up as a condition of my employment buying them all. Who are just like, hey, you're you're probably going to order this fight, aren't you? Like, can I come over? Can I watch this one? You know, I mean, it's going to be a a real hodgepodge of humanity over there in my basement watching this fight. And that's how you know it's kind of a big one. Yeah, well, we've gone on too long. We're going to get to talk about Mayweather-McGregor some more, at least for one more week, right? I, I, I assume it'll come up again. So let's not fire all the bullets right now. We've got to keep a few in the chamber for next week. One thing I would recommend to people, uh, you saw the ESPN, the magazine issue, the fighting issue that they did. Yeah. And they have like a profile of Conor McGregor. But in there, they have a thing where they talk to a bunch of Mayweather sparring partners, many of whom are past opponents, basically being like, okay, Explain it to us what makes him so good. And there's a lot of really detailed technical analysis from them that is really fascinating to hear. That really kind of gives you an appreciation for what Mayweather is able to do. And you can you can find it online without having to buy the magazine, or at least I did. And I, I definitely recommend going and checking that out because you can hear kind of the awe in some of these guys' voice. And they are elite boxers in many cases. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
Well, Chad, the first thing I want to say about this round that we're going to spend talking about my bullshit, as you put it, was that this is your idea. You you wanted to talk about this story that I did over the weekend about whether fighters would qualify qualify as employees rather than independent contractors, at least UFC fighters, um, mainly because hashtag ain't shit going on. Uh, but also because it's one of the, you know, one of several issues that you could say about how UFC fighters are treated and one that seems like it's not on a whole lot of fighters radar, maybe just because they got so many bigger fish to fry in terms of fighter pay and, and treatment and the way the contracts are structured. But I was interested when I started kind of looking into this and talking to people, the kind of people who would know, uh, and looking into some of the recent precedent with other people who were uh, misclassified as independent contractors, that it seems like this could be a major potential hurdle for the UFC, like one of several. You know, we talked about when the UFC was sold to WME, IMG, how there were a lot of things that could potentially be on the horizon, you know, already this existing antitrust suit, maybe a future uh, head trauma concussions type suit like the the NFL has faced. Uh, And then you got something like this that we've already seen, like in – Fairly recent years, you know, uh, I talked to a lawyer on this who works for the firm uh, Uten and Golden, which is a big employer employment law uh, law firm that helped the strippers in New York basically sue over being misclassified by a bunch of strip clubs in New York. And those strip clubs had to pay millions of dollars because they had been misclassifying employees as independent contractors for years. You wonder what the UFC's tax debt would be if it were found that it had been doing the same thing. Well, first of all, I want to say that a lot of people don't know this, but my exclusive performance contract with the Co-Main Event Podcast uh, means that the the show basically exists to prop up the Ben Folks brand. So that's why we're here. That's why we're doing this round. And I'd like to point out you're not wearing your uniform so that you're going to be fine. Okay, well, that actually brings up the, the next thing I was going to say, and that is speaking as an independent contractor, I am paid as an independent contractor, one of the things... Or the the things that sort of started to tip the uh that was the tipping point I guess you would say for me in the the discussion of UFC fighters uh was were things like the introduction of the Reebok apparel deal and uh the introduction of the advanced drug testing by USADA which was something that I think a lot of people including us in the media and spectators uh, saw as a real necessary thing to have have to have happen in in mixed martial arts to, to like gain more mainstream acceptance and and do whatever we could to guarantee that uh the competition is on the level like bleacher report pays me as an independent contractor they do not specify that while i'm working i have to wear a bleacher report polo shirt nor do they drug test me and i feel like if they did i would start to be like wait a second motherfuckers this is starting to make me feel a lot more like an employee than an independent contract contractor and i feel the same way about fighters like i feel like the not only the exclusive UFC uh, contracts, but the you know the the restrictive Reebok apparel deal and the drug testing thing all kind of come together to exert an awful lot of control over these so-called independent contractors' lives, and that's just one of the things that makes me feel like maybe everybody would be better off if if we if they did move to uh, to employment or uh, you know employee status. Well, yeah, well, then, though, a lot of things start to change. Like, for one thing, if they're all employees, then they have the right to form a union and uh, be protected under the 
uh, the the laws that concern like you know right now they would have to form an association um, as independent contractors they don't have protections to form a union employees can form a union um, not to mention like the tax difference because like as you know as an independent contractor you end up paying that employment tax to the IRS instead of your employer like you take home less money as an independent contractor than you would if you were making the same thing uh, as an employee and also you know the some of the stuff that you see has been used by other people like the issue of the uniforms that was something that the fedex drivers use uh when they challenged their employment classification is to be like hey look how are we independent contractors if there's all these rules about wearing the uniforms and how we have to wear the uniforms and like uh ways you get into trouble if you don't wear the uniform and we've seen that i mean the ufc will fine you if you don't wear the uniform the right way uh so that seems like something that could definitely work against them. Uh, and also that issue of like fines and telling, like basically setting people a schedule and telling them you have to be here now. And if you screw up some of this stuff, then there's fines. Uh, one of the things that like NFL cheerleaders have used uh, to challenge their distinction. Uh, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And also though, uh, as I learned in doing the story that the, the lawyer who kind of specializes this was saying is that it depends how you challenge it what the test is going to be to see if you're an employee or independent contractor. Like, it depends who you're asking to make that decision. And there's a bunch of different ways to go about challenging it, but they all kind of look at the totality of the circumstances, and basically you ask yourself, is this person in business for themselves? And if you ask that question about UFC fighters, I don't see how you can arrive at a yes. Yeah. Because there is no business really, you know, this does not really exist without the UFC. If they were in all independent contractors, then it seems like they ought to be able to make a fight with a Bellator guy or with a, you know, a a Ryzen guy or whatever, and they can't even come close to doing it. The contractual limitations on them are so strong that it would seem tough to make that case. Are you sure that you did not do this story because of its proximity to strippers and cheerleaders? Hey, that was just a happy accident that just happened. serendipity that you stumbled into that one? Also, I learned through doing this that the Buffalo Bills cheerleaders were called the Jills. Huh. That's interesting. That? Yeah. The Buffalo Jills. Yeah. Ah, ah, I see what they did. Yep. You get it. And like the thing, one of the things to me is the the uh, just the machinations of the USADA drug testing protocol. Like, if you are in that thing, we've been led to believe you basically have to tell the drug testers where you are going to be at all times. Right. Which not something that you mentioned, but to me is another uh, indicator that maybe you are not strictly an independent contractor, right? Like, if you have to be available at all times for this uh, drug testing thing, and that seems to me like. Um, a lot of control over your existence. Well, and one of the things that I guess I came out of at the end was we've talked before about how it seems like the Fertitas pulled off a great heist movie kind of ending in right. selling this thing when they did. And now they're getting bought out, right? Right. And yeah. it makes it makes me even more convinced of that because uh, one of the things, you know, I talked to Gary Ibarra, who's managed uh, several fighters like Kung Lee and stuff, and he also has a background in labor law. And him saying, you know, he made a good point about basically that the UFC wanted to have it both ways. Like it wanted the control of that you normally would only have over employees, like making them only work for you and not work for anybody else. Um, but it also, you know, didn't want some of the other stuff that would go along with having employees. Like maybe if, you know, John Jones and Daniel Cormier get in a huge brawl at a press conference and the shoe hits somebody in the head, then those are your employees and maybe you get a problem then. Um, so it was able to have it both ways because of the nature of the industry that it's in that has gone pretty much unchecked. Uh, that, you know, you have state athletic commissions 
but you you don't have a whole lot of oversight. And that's probably got to be one of the selling points when you are going to sell this thing to a huge conglomerate is, look, you can have control over this sport that is largely unregulated. Yeah. And you can kind of do whatever you want with it. And that it's gone, has this unchecked power for so long, and you wonder how long that can possibly continue. Because it seems like if some of these dominoes start to fall, you find yourself in a very different situation as the owners of the UFC. Meanwhile, the Fertitas are sipping umbrella drinks with a big pile of money. Uh, okay, well, here's the chameleon dollar question, though, right? If there's, if the UFC can, or if UFC fighters can only form an association, and of which they do not have at this point, who brings the legal action to try to get reclassified as employees, and what would that effort take? Yeah, and see, that's the question. And you could, you could basically, it would take somebody. Um, one of the easiest paths, as, as far as it's been explained to me, is somebody hires a lawyer and sues over these lost wages, um, like the the tax money that you paid that your employer should have paid, or like in other cases, people have done it over overtime pay, but that gets tricky. And you have because when do you, what do you count as your working hours? It's probably just when you're in the cage would be the UFC's argument, and because the training, you don't have to do any training really if you don't want to, you can just show up. Um, so it would take somebody, probably like an individual or like a few people. Uh, banding together to, to sue over something like that. Um, or, you know, if they did try to form a union and the UFC and call it a union and the UFC said you can't form a union, uh, your employees, then you can force somebody, you can force a decision to be made based on those grounds. But the thing that makes it seem like it's probably not on the horizon anytime soon is that you don't, this is just not one of those issues you hear fighters talking about. Like, I don't know, I can't believe. I don't get employee status. Like they have a lot of other stuff that they're more concerned about. And the the one group that is basically in court right now, the UFC, uh, the MMA FA people, uh, this isn't something that they're really looking for. They, I, you know, they are not looking to make fighters uh, classified as employees. So it is a question of who would do it and when and how and exactly why. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number three. Ben, this week for my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Uh, I just want to uh, read this quote from the great and powerful O's. You're talking Vulcan about Ozdemir. You're talking about No Time? Yeah, No Time Ozdemir. Okay. All right. This is him on Monday's edition of the MMA Hour. That was John Jones. He's talking about the John Jones. John Jones's performance basically against Daniel Cormier in their, recently, in their recent fight. That was John Jones. That was his style. He was doing his stuff. But I didn't see any new weapons. Of course, he probably didn't get to display everything. And yeah, that fight was dominant. But DC had some good moments too. So, you know, I wasn't that impressed. Are you fucking kidding me? Everyone on God's green earth better hope that John Jones don't find no new weapons. Or he's just going to take this whole shit over. Forget fighting. He's just going to take the whole world over with his new weapons. Yeah, like new weapons be like rockets that come out of his shoulder? I didn't see any new weapons. Are you fucking kidding me? Is that because he already had all the weapons? And so every time he shows off every single weapon there is, there's still no new weapons? Yeah, not impressed. Still got all the weapons. Not impressed. I'm kidding me. What's your head? My are you fucking kidding me this week? Scrolling through Twitter the other day, I see Ariel Helwani, uh, and he posts a picture at, I don't know if he's at the UFC Performance Institute or one of the UFC offices, and it, it says, the caption is, say hello to the UFC Hall of Fame members, and it's the, all these octagonal pl- plaques, and it says there's a thing on the wall that says UFC Hall of Fame, but it seems to be in a stairway? Seems to be actually a stairway of fame? Which, I guess, 
you know, that that could be a, its own thing, be inducted into the stairwell of fame for the UFC. But are you fucking kidding me? You go to the Baseball Hall of Fame, and it's a great big building with a bunch of elaborate, you know, uh, mementos to the game and all kinds of great stuff, and everybody gets these fancy plaques and, and bronze busts and everything. Meanwhile, the UFC invites you to check out its most famous heroes as you're going up or down the stairs looking for a vending machine to buy a Sprite. You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Maybe they need another hundred years, like what baseball had. Okay. So you're saying, just set my clock for 100 years. Yeah, check back in 100 years. All right. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, apparently it's official. UFC 217 in New York City at Madison Square Garden on November the 4th. We're going to get George St. Pierre against Michael Bisping for the UFC middleweight title. Now, I tell you what, Ben, if you had asked me a month or two after George St. Pierre originally declared his hiatus from the sport of mixed martial arts, when was that? Late 2013? I, it was approximately 27 years ago, from what I recall. If you had asked me what my level of hype, what my hype level would be for the return of George St. Pierre, I would have said pretty high. I would be, I'd be very hyped for the return of George St. Pierre. I don't know, man. Like, I, I'm going to watch this fight. I'm looking forward to it. But my hype level is not quite at the fever pitch that I assumed it would be. Yourself? You know what this feels like to me? It feels like when, you know, when Demetrius Johnson was released his big thing about where he details all the things that happened going back and forth with the UFC trying to book these fights. And when they were trying to get him to fight TJ Dillashaw, and then he claims Dana White told him, like, hey, this is for TJ. TJ, like, deserves this, basically. This feels like what we're doing on both sides of this fight. Like, hey, Michael Bisping deserves this big payday because he's been such a company guy for the UFC for years. Now he finally has the belt. Uh, he wants to get that super fight money, basically. Um, George St. Pierre, it takes something like this big promise of a big payday to get him to come out of retirement. Plus, he probably thinks Michael Bisping is the most beatable middleweight champion you're going to see in a long time. And your best chance to like be able to say you were a two-division UFC champion. Um, and all he's done for the sport and for the UFC, he deserves what he wants. It seems like we're doing this for everybody but the fans who seem not that excited about it. It seems like for the UFC, like, okay, you'll make a big payday out of it. Michael Bisping will make him a lot of money. George St. Pierre will make a lot of money. Everybody who has a lot of money already is going to make a lot of money. Uh, and it seems like the people who are least excited about it are the people who are being asked to supply that money. To that end, however, the great strength, the strength of George St. Pierre used to be, that's right, I said strength. You don't have to look at me that way. No, I didn't say anything. I thought of something humorous I heard earlier. The great strength of George St. Pierre used to be, historically was, that you could throw him out there against Dan Hardy, you could throw him out there against Jake Shields, you could throw him out there against Josh Koscheck, and he was going to go out and sell you somewhere between 500,000 and 800,000 pay-per-views every time. Do we think that he still has that, or is this kind of like a litmus test to see uh, how it sells and whether or not George St. Pierre is still packing around that uh, extremely lucrative uh, fan base north of the border. Well, I would counter that, that 
one of the things you've always known about Michael Bisping is that you can put him in there against Luke Rockhold. You can put him in there against uh, Chel Sonny. You can put him in there against Dan Henderson. And he is going to give you a goddamn blood feud. It's going to be intensely personal. And even if the other person tries to not get involved in it, you are going to want to see that person punch him in his mouth just in a kind of uh, vicarious way because he is going to be so grating every step of the way. Like, he can really sell a fight, and he sells it all the same way every single time, and I think he sells it well because he believes it. He'll talk himself into believing that this is a blood feud. And so I think you kind of put those two things together where you got one guy who's famous and he's been away a while, and, you know, so it has that kind of appeal to see if he still has it. You got the other guy who is just going to talk uh, an enormous amount of shit to the point where you want to see somebody shut him up by the end of it. I think that they're going to be able to work some hype for this one. I think that they'll, I mean, by the end of it, like by the time they get there, I think maybe every, even the people who are right now feeling like, oh man, this is not the, the one I really wanted to see are going to feel a little more motivated to sit down and actually watch this thing. Man, you just made me think for the first time how awkward the trash talk leading up to this fight could be. Just because you are going to have Michael Bisping doing his Michael Bisping thing. And I would assume George St. Pierre doing the mild-mannered French-Canadian uh, guy who then is just going to hand you your ass in the cage, right? Like, that's the only thing we've ever seen from him, really, except for the few times that he actually did seem to let an opponent get under his skin. Like maybe Nick Diaz right, can get yeah. it out of him. Like and maybe Diaz. Michael Bisping can, too. Maybe he can, yeah. But I just remember when George St. Pierre walked away, one of the things he talked about was like, the that balancing that razor's edge uh, at the time of being the UFC longtime welterweight champion where everybody uh, was going to come hunting for that title. But it seemed like, you know, everything about George St. Pierre having to journey to his dark place to get ready uh, for fights was one of the things that kind of drove him out of the sport. And that makes me wonder, like, uh, how he is feeling about coming back against a guy who's going to make it his business to turn this into a very contentious kind of blood feud. Yeah. Well, I mean, you wonder just in general, you've been off for that long, what you're going to be like when you finally get back in there. And, you know, Michael Bisping's been off a little while too. So that I think is one of the biggest question marks that you're not going to be able to figure out until they actually get in the cage together. But I do think that, you know, when you, I, I wouldn't mind it as much if you didn't have such an interesting middleweight division right now. There are so many good fights that you can make for the middleweight title and so many good middleweights out there. And to then be like, all right, but we're going to have him fight a welterweight instead. And Michael Bisping has not been a very active middleweight champion. So if he goes out there and he fights George St. Pierre and he beats him, how long are you going to have to wait to see Michael Bisping versus Bobby Knuckles? Are you going to have to wait another year? If you are mad about this, you are going to be furious about the thing I am going to say next. Oh, no. So George St. Pierre is on the uh, MMA fortnight today with, with Ariel Helwani, right? Uh, and he says that it's in his contract that if he wins this fight and he beats Michael Bisping, that he has to defend the UFC middleweight title. Now, let's fast forward a little bit here, Ben. Assuming for the sake of this argument that George St. Pierre, who we all know is a 170-pound man, uh, beats Michael Bisping for the title, which maybe that's a stretch. I don't know. Uh, and becomes the UFC middleweight champion. Who do you imagine deep in your brain's heart might be the next guy to fight George St. Pierre? For the UFC middleweight title. Are you going to say Bobby Knuckles? I'm going to say a guy whose name maybe rhymes with Shauner McGregor. <laughs> or uh, Banderson Bilva. 
either of those two guys. I mean, if you if we are fully into the WME IMG era, right, and you want to break the bank before we even get to Brock Lesnar versus John Jones, can you imagine Conor McGregor fighting for the middleweight title, his third UFC weight class against? How are you just gonna skip welterweight? A forty-year-old, well, George St. Pierre. Or for that matter, like you were saying, Anderson Silva. Like those are those are your big money fights, right? For a middleweight champion, George St. Pierre. Man, I think maybe we're we're looking too deep into the crystal ball here and scaring ourselves. It's possible. It's possible. It's possible that we're we're staring into the mirror and we don't like what's looking back at us. Who do you actually give the edge to in this Bisping GSP fight? Ah, uh, just thinking about it now, I have no idea because. You know, Bisping will come in with what I assume is a considerable size advantage. And we know that his game is that high octane pressure boxing style. And if George St. Pierre can't consistently take him down, that to me feels like a long night for George St. Pierre. But with the exception of that Johnny Hendricks fight, it's been so long since we've seen, well, it's been so long since we've seen George St. Pierre, period. But, But prior to that, he was just dominant against everyone he fought, right? So it's it's hard to totally count the guy out. But at the same time, like against a bigger man with some decent takedown defense who's going to uh, pressure you constantly and stay in your face and really test your cardio over 25 minutes, uh, that does seem like kind of a tough matchup. Yeah, I'm also curious about how you're going to make him defend the middleweight title if he absolutely doesn't want to. And what if he's just like, all right, I'll see you in a year. I'm going to go, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to go do some gymnastics. I'm going to go find myself a little bit. I'll come back a little, like, a, you know, then you're in interim title territory again, and that kind of sucks. And then, you know who the big winner is? Default greatest welterweight of all time, Tyron Woodley. Default. Well, I think the way that you make George St. Pierre defend the middleweight title is that you give him a tasty matchup, right? Like uh, George St. Pierre versus CM Punk, the middleweight title? That would be a pretty tasty. Yeah. But, uh, well, I mean, you're going to have to make it worth his while financially and uh, give him a fight that he seem, thinks is winnable. I'm drawing a blank of trying to think of two guys that fit that bill. <laughs> right? All right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week, Ben. Ben, what's your Just Saying Stuff? Chad, I don't know if you saw that your boy Tito Ortiz got out of neck surgery, and uh, he's all better now. Oh, good, good. Uh, said I guess that, I can put these prayer beads down. Yeah. Uh, his procedure was successful and said that it was really nice not to be in pain anymore, which as a, a fellow pile of trash neck sufferer, I can tell you I, I kind of understand what he's saying there. And then in the end of the video, he says, I'm alive. I'm fixed. Now it's time to get ready because, Chael, I'm kicking your ass. I'm just saying... Please, dear God, no. You want to tell me you just, you finally got your neck fixed. You're so happy. You're finally happy to be pain-free. And the thing you're going to do as your first order of business is go back to the thing that fucked your neck all up? Are you kidding me, man? It's like a dude just, just, just all his bee stings finally healed. And he can't wait to climb up that tree uh, with a big rake and just start swatting <laughs> to the branches again. I'm just saying heavy sigh. Just some, I'm just saying... There has to be somebody who cares about this man who can intervene here and stop this thing. Well, Ben, I, I tipped my hand on this a little bit earlier in the show, but before, as we were preparing for this, I was thinking about the very first time on the CME that we talked about 
the possibility of Floyd Mayweather versus Conor McGregor actually becoming a real thing. And I think at the time I said it should be a cakewalk for Floyd Mayweather, but we all know Conor McGregor is so good at the lead up to this, to this stuff at the, at the media part of this that I bet you by the time the fight is right around the corner, Conor McGregor is going to make us feel like he actually has a chance in this fight. The most hardened cynic will have to look into the confident eyes of Conor McGregor and will end up feeling like, oh, what if he lands that left? And as I said earlier in the show, much maybe to my own chagrin, I'm kind of feeling that way. So this week I'm just saying, do I have to give myself an are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, you have become your own worst case scenario. Just a uh, a terrible picture of my former self. Yeah, I like to think of you as a cautionary tale for yourself. You're not. You're supposed to get smarter and savvier as you grow old. No, not, you're just getting not weaker just lining up to, to plunk down my money. Yeah. for Mayweather McGregor and and Lesnar versus Jones. And let's be honest, when you say plunk down your money, you mean come over to my house. Yeah, and sit yeah. there with my dad yes. and watch it. Yeah. Oh, is your dad going to be over? Oh, my dad's going to be there for sure. Can't wait to hang out with BJ. That's going to be awesome. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week. Uh, that will, I guess will be the official Mayweather McGregor look ahead, right? Woo. And, and other stuff too. We promise. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know what we need now is if we can get like maybe some arena football players to start sending us in listener mail now that we're getting, we're getting hyped up for McGregor Mayweather. Maybe uh, some famous cricket players. I feel like this is a bad, bad idea. I feel like maybe we push this as far as we can. But oh, we have pushed.